Psalm 130, we'll be reading the whole thing and then pray and we'll get into it. So Psalm 130, out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that in our time together today that you would stir up in our hearts hope. Lord, as we, as we look out in the world and as we see trials and tribulations, as we see difficulty and hardship and suffering, not just in our own lives, but in the lives of people across the world, as we look out and see what is, Lord, would you remind us of what is to come? Lord, that you will return, that you will make all things new. And in the hope of Jesus Christ, would you help us to navigate faithfully this tension that we live in with our circumstances in one hand and yet the promises and the character of God in the other. Would you teach us today and lead us in this time? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Advent is this this season of hope. Advent simply means arrival. It's when we look back on the arrival of Jesus Christ and we look forward to his return. We remember the anticipation that the people of God experienced under Roman oppression as they longed for Messiah to come and the joy that filled their hearts when Messiah came and they heard the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they had been set free not only from, uh, not, not, not merely from Roman occupation, but from oppression of sin and Satan and death. And so we look back on that season. We remember what the baby in the manger means. And we look forward to when he will return, to when he will come, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, to make all things new. And so we wait, we anticipate, just like our our ancient spiritual forefathers did as they longed for the coming of Christ. We long for the return of Christ. And so Advent is this season of hope, this season of hope. But we need to understand what hope is and what it isn't. Because in our culture, we use hope in a variety of different ways. Sometimes, most of the time, I think the way we use hope is we use it uh, as a synonym for want. Right? I hope I get a puppy for Christmas. It's just basically a placeholder for want. Sometimes hope is general optimism, right? If you have hope, you have hope that tomorrow is going to be a better day, that things are going to change, that things are going to be different in the future. And sometimes hope is this concept of a last-ditch effort, right? If this doesn't work, then nothing else will. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. 
You're my only hope. I think this is actually getting to what biblical hope is, but I think there's more to it. See, there's two words in this psalm that are of special importance, that need some special attention. See, every time the word hope appears in this psalm, at least in the ESV translation, the word in the original language is yakal. And yakal can mean hope. It can also mean to wait. And so the first time we see this word in the Bible is actually in the story of Noah. If you remember that Noah and his family and the animals are on the ark for 40 days and 40 nights, it's pouring rain. And when the rain stops, Noah sends out a series of birds to see if those birds can find dry land. And as he's waiting for the birds to return, he is yakaling. He is hoping, waiting. It's this, it's this wait hoping. And so there, this, this, this idea of yakal, yes, it's hope, but there's this concept of, of, of waiting. And there's another word in the text too, a word that dominates verses five and six. That, uh, that word in the original language is kava, which also means to wait, but this word's really interesting. Uh, kava comes from the same word in the original language that means cord, like a rope. And so it has this this connotation, this concept of a a cord being stretched between uh, two opposite forces, pulling on the cord so that it's it's tight. And so the one waiting, the one uh, one kavaing is anticipating that something will come, something will finally break the tension. And so like this, uh, like a game of emotional tug of war where we are the rope, we are being pulled on by two different forces. In the one hand, we have the, the reality and the pain of our circumstances. Your, your fear, your, your grief is real grief. Your pain is real pain. And, and, and we hold it and we're honest about it in the one hand. But in the other hand, we have what we know to be true about the character and the promises of God. And this life is a life of, of tension, of hoping and waiting, waiting for the day when God will finally break the tension. And so this psalm is a perfect example of this kind of waiting, this kind of hoping, this kind of tension. And the thing that helps us to navigate this tension between desperation and deliverance is hope. Hope in who God is, in what he's done, and what he will do. And so the tension in our psalm begins in the psalmist's desperation. We learn a lot about ourselves, and we learn a lot about God in desperate situations. Here's a little little pastoral confession. You meet people all the time. Maybe if you haven't, you will. Just ask people what their favorite book of the Bible is, and you will meet people all the time who will tell you, I just love the Psalms. Throughout my Christian faith, I did not resonate with them. I'm not saying the Psalms are bad. Psalms are good. I just never, I was never that person that just like longed for the Psalms. I always gravitated toward the Gospels, toward Paul's writings. I love Old Testament narrative. 
right? Exodus is just my bread and butter. I love Moses. I love those stories. And I always had a really difficult time with the Psalms and, 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 and relating to the Psalms until the pandemic. I remember early on in the pandemic for a couple of weeks, I just found myself unable to pray. I just, I didn't know how to pray. I didn't, I didn't know how to talk to God about what I was experiencing. I didn't know what to pray for. It felt like if I was honest with God about my experience, I would either be invalidating his goodness or his sovereignty. And I looked out at the world and I was like, God, I don't know. I just, I don't know how to talk to you right now. And then in creeps the shame and the guilt and the lies of the devil that just telling me like, you call yourself a pastor? You call yourself a pastor and you don't, and you, and you don't know how to pray? Oh, you, sh- you, should be, you should be ashamed of yourself. And so I, not only did I feel discouraged in my faith, but I felt alone and I felt ashamed. I felt disqualified. I felt like this, this like what is, God, what is wrong with me? And I can't, in the moment, I couldn't tell you why this happened. Now, looking back, I can tell you it was just clearly the Holy Spirit in a moment, sitting on my front porch in the sun, just like lamenting over the way things were going on in the world. I just opened up to the book of Psalms and I started reading. And I found words for my experience. I found words for what I was experiencing and I would just read and anytime I resonated with something in the psalm, I would just literally point to it in the text and say, God, this, 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 this is where I'm at. This is how I feel. And where I didn't have words, the psalms came and, and gave me words where I didn't know how to talk to God about what I was experiencing in the world. The psalmist has experienced the world and he gave me words. And when I knew that I was to hope in Jesus and hope in a better future, when it just felt like platitudes, the psalmist gave me words to understand how to navigate this broken world with hope in God. And the psalms have quickly become my favorite book in the Bible. I go to the Psalms constantly now because he gives me, the the Holy Spirit gives us words, gives us prayer, gives us the, the, the words to communicate with God and to commune with God. And it's beautiful and it's completely changed the way that I experience the Psalms. See, when you don't have words, God has given us a place to start. When you feel overwhelmed in your circumstances, when you feel alone in your faith, when you feel like nobody understands you, when you feel like like you are are condemned in, in your inability to commune with God, you have company in the psalmist. You have company in the word of God. Listen to the psalmist's desperation. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. And it's not just the psalm. This this is a regular experience of the psalmist. Listen to how King David begins Psalm 69. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim in waiting for my God. This is a man in deep desperation. 
both of these psalms, they begin in this deep desperation, a cry for God to save them from this this flood of anguish, from the waters of pain, and they feel alone in it. They feel alone in what's happening. And I'll give you a little spoiler. In each of these psalms, these psalms that begin in this place of desperation where the psalmist is crying out for God to hear, for God to speak, for God to intervene. Spoiler alert, God never does. He never does in these psalms. God never speaks in these psalms. And yet the psalmist can have hope. See, we often feel like our lives, our circumstances are very different from the biblical characters. Like for some reason, every time they talked to God, they heard an audible voice. And we feel like our experience is so different, but we're not so different. The saints of old were discouraged. The saints of old experienced these seasons where they felt alone, where they felt like God was silent, where they had to pray, God, open your ears. Let your ears be attentive to my my pleas for mercy. The saints of old felt alone and were troubled by it. These past few years have been incredibly difficult for everyone. And and as a church, we've experienced our own unique pains in these last few years. And, And maybe some of you have felt alone. Maybe you're here and you still feel alone in it. You feel alone in your perspective. You feel alone in the way you view the world. You feel alone in the way that you view the things that have transpired in your life or in the church or in the world or in politics or whatever it is. Maybe you feel alone, but when you feel discouraged and like God is so far away, you're actually in good company. You're in good company. The psalmist wants you to know that he understands The psalmist wants you to know that he's experienced that anguish. He's experienced that pain, that discouragement, and that feeling of isolation. And he wants you to know that there is hope. That there is hope when you feel that way. That there is hope that God is able to deliver you from your desperation. But he wants you to know what the source of our desperation truly is. See, our circumstances in life are real. Your pain is real. Your grief is real. Your feelings of isolation, those are real. And we should never diminish those or try to run from those. We need to press into those, call them what they are honestly, lament that we experience those, but we bring them to the Lord. And so our circumstances in life are real, but our truest need the psalmist says, is to be delivered from sin. The source of the psalmist's struggle in this text is sin. He says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. See, iniquity is just is one of these words in Scripture used to describe the human condition. It's like sin, transgression, corruption, evil. All of these words describe the human condition. But iniquity means wickedness. It's not just making mistakes. It's not just doing the wrong thing. It's, it's a heart that is bent toward corruption. See, sin is like a computer virus. 
right? And it entered into the world when Adam and Eve ate the, the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They ate the wrong fruit from the wrong tree, just like that last time you downloaded the wrong file from the wrong website and your entire operating system is now kaput. It's, it's, we, we operate in this corruption. We operate in this brokenness, in this sin. And so it's sin has spread into every aspect of creation. And so now it's corrupted. And so we operate in this brokenness. We operate kind of like, like we're glitching all the time or like our, our software is crashing. And so the world's greatest need is God's mercy. The world's greatest need is God's mercy for sin. And so the psalmist knows that if God were to hold everyone accountable for our iniquity, no one would be able to stand. And so he cries out to God for mercy because he knows that in him we can find forgiveness. God has what you truly need. God has what you need and is generous with it. And so the psalmist is pointing our attention to God for in him there is forgiveness. And when we receive forgiveness, as the psalmist says, our fear shifts from our circumstances and on to God. Did you catch that in this text? That, that the reason we fear the Lord is because forgiveness? For God, in you there is forgiveness that you may be feared that you may be, the reason there is forgiveness is that you may be feared. If someone were to ask you before today, why should you fear the Lord? How many of us would have responded, well, forgiveness, of course. My kids have literally asked me that question. I probably gave them some theological, you know, long length answer and could have just said, because forgiveness. But how? Why does forgiveness inspire the fear of the Lord. Check this out. At the beginning of the psalm, the source of the psalmist's fear is his circumstances, specifically his iniquity. And he's desperate to be rescued. But then here in the middle, his fear shifts from his circumstances. It shifts from his iniquity and on to God. Because the greatest power in this world is not sin. The greatest power in this world is not sin. It's not Satan. It's not death. The greatest power in this world is God. And so remember when Jesus and his disciples were on the boat in the middle of the storm and they're freaking out. Jesus is asleep and Peter and the disciples, they run and they say, don't you care that we're perishing? And so Jesus wakes up and says, storm, chill out. And the storm chills out. They did not respond by jumping and celebrating. They responded in fear because someone, there was something on the boat that was stronger than the storm. There was something on the boat whose words were more powerful than the storm. And so they were terrified, even when that power is used for their good. His power is used for their good. And they're still in awe, in reverent fear of the one that's on the boat. And so God's power and willingness to save means he must be taken seriously. This is the fear of the Lord. That God must be taken seriously, not because we're afraid that he'll hurt us, 
We're not afraid of him smiting us. The fear is this reverence before the one who both condemns sin and forgives sin. The fear of the Lord is taking both our sin and God seriously. It's taking God seriously for who he is and taking our sin seriously for what it is and what the consequences of our sin are. It's knowing, the fear of the Lord is knowing that the very same one who judges sin is also the one who is our hope for forgiveness. And so this this power and beauty and forgiveness of God shifts our fear from our sin and our circumstances and what might happen onto the one who uses his power for our good, but deserves our reverent awe and wonder and worship. And so God is so much greater than sin. There may be some here who who fear the Lord because you believe if you step out of line that God will smite you. But that's not what the, the, the word of God says something different. It tells us to fear the Lord because when we step out of line, sin doesn't have the last word. That Jesus has the last word. Someone so much greater than sin will have the last word. And Jesus forgives sinners. That's a beautiful truth that we can take to the bank and stand in reverent awe and wonder. And it also is what gives us hope. And so it's in light of who God is and what he does that the psalmist has hope. He continues, he says, I wait for the Lord. Remember, this is, this is that word uh, kavah. This is that, that, that tension, that rope being stretched between two realities. He says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. More than the watchman for the morning. In the face of insurmountable obstacles, when you're drowning, when you feel afraid, when you're overwhelmed, we find hope in the Lord and we wait for his deliverance. And so the psalm teaches us to wait in anticipation for the Lord, to long for him to come and to redeem his people. And so the reason that his people can be confident in this anticipation is because of God's word. He says, in your word, I hope. And this hope in God's word is more than just hoping that God speaks into the situation. Remember, like I told you, God never speaks in this psalm. It's it's just the psalmist coming to him. And so how can he hope in God's word if God never speaks, if God never gives him an answer to his prayers? Well, it's his recognition that God has already spoken in Scripture. And so scripture is this written record of God's saving work of his covenant people. And so the psalmist is confident in his future with the Lord because of God's past faithfulness to his people. He's, God's continually forgiving. He's continually for, uh, forgiving. He's continually providing hope throughout the scriptures. And so from beginning to end, the Bible is a book of hope and salvation. From the very beginning to the end, it is a book of hope. Remember at the very beginning of the Bible, when the the world was a dark, watery chaos, and life could not inhabit 
uh, earth. The, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The world was uninhabitable, chaotic, and empty, covered in water, but the Spirit of God is there. And where the Spirit of God is, there is hope. And so the Lord, he, he speaks all things into existence and he makes this dark watery chaos into a, a, a place of paradise for his people. Because when God steps into the scene, no matter how desperate a situation, there is hope. And in this paradise, when humanity rebelled against God, and sinned against God in the garden, and they feared death, and so they hid from God. God came to them. He found them. He clothed them, and he promised them that not only would he not crush them, but that a seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent who tempted them, and his heel would be bruised in the process. He gives them the message of hope, the first good news communicated to them after the fall. And so humanity can have hope because the serpent will be destroyed. And then God called Abraham. And he told Abraham that he was going to make him a great nation. And then he was going to give him innumerable children. And that he was going to bless him. And that his children were going to be a blessing to all the families of the world. But there was one problem. Abraham's wife, Sarah, couldn't have kids. How would this be fulfilled? And so Abraham waited, hoped and waited for 25 years. How many of us have waited for 25 years for anything? He waited for 25 years, and when he was 100 years old and his wife was 90, the promised son Isaac was born. And when Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers and wrongly accused by his master's wife and put into prison, the Lord was with him, and he rescued him from his imprisonment, and he established him as the, the most powerful person in all of Egypt next to Pharaoh. And God used his position to save his covenant people from famine. And then when Israel was enslaved in Egypt for 400 years and was on their way out, but their backs were up against the Red Sea and Pharaoh and his army were in hot pursuit. And they said, what are we going to do? The Lord parted the sea and Israel walked across on dry land and into freedom. And then when they worshiped the golden calf, immediately after being brought into covenant with God, like having an affair on their wedding night, Moses interceded for the people and God forgave the people. And then when they grumbled and complained against God and a plague of snakes entered the camp and started biting people and people started dying. God told Moses to make a bronze serpent and lift it up on a pole and anyone who looked at the serpent would be healed from their disease and they would not die, but they would live. This is what it means to hope in God's word. It's remembering his work of redemption from the very beginning. And that was just from the first four books of the Bible. All of those stories, that's just from the very beginning. And so God's past reputation of deliverance and forgiveness is our future assurance of our deliverance, of our forgiveness. God's faithfulness is like the sunrise, the psalmist says, that he's waiting more than the watchman for the morning. And so the psalmist is waiting with anticipation. The watchman would stand guard on a, a, uh, on a wall surrounding a city or on a castle, they would, they would stand guard and they would watch and, and defend the, the, the territory from attack. And so night was a very vulnerable 
season where they couldn't see what was in front of them. They couldn't see what might be mounting an attack in in the distance beyond the, the shadows. And so they strained their eyes. They waited for the morning. They waited for that glimpse of dawn. They waited for the sun to come up and to illuminate what was out there so that they would know that they were safe. And so you may feel like you are shrouded in darkness. You may feel alone and discouraged. You might feel like like the the world around you is, is, is hopeless and dark, but God is more faithful than the sun. As the sun rises, God will deliver. God will save. God will forgive. It's who he is. It's what he does. The reason that the psalmist can have this confidence, the reason that the psalmist can have this hope, the reason it's not wishful thinking is because this is who God is. This is what he has done. This is what he always has done, what he always will do. And so hope is not wishful thinking. It's a resolved trust in the character and the promises of God so that we're not abandoned in our desperation, but we have the assurance of deliverance. You can know today that you can have the assurance of deliverance regardless of your circumstances, regardless of what you're going through, regardless of how you feel trapped in life or how you feel condemned by your mistakes or how you feel cut off from community or how you feel trapped in whether it's addiction or sin or violence, whatever it is, whatever you are trapped in, you can know today that you can be certain of your deliverance. You can have Hope today because of who God is, because of what he has done, because he will always do it. This is who he is. He is the God who delivers. It was this hope and assurance of deliverance that enabled God's people to endure some of the most difficult seasons and situations in life. They persevered through persecution and violence time and time again plagued by suffering and evil. They waited for the promises of God to be fulfilled. Year in and year out, they would read these psalms. They would sing these psalms together. They would pray these words when they didn't know how to pray. In fact, this psalm has a really interesting place in Israel's worship. Sorry, garland is falling down here. This uh, this psalm has a really interesting place in, in Israel's worship. It's one of 15 psalms in the Bible that have the heading, A Song of Ascent. And these 15 psalms were sung by the Jewish people as they would ascend the mountain to Jerusalem, as they would ascend uh, to Jerusalem and to the temple to worship God during the prescribed feasts. And so you can imagine all of these pilgrims coming from all over the kingdom, walking toward Jerusalem, singing these songs. In fact, last Sunday, we talked about the triumphal entry when Jesus entered Jerusalem for the Passover feast. Jesus and his disciples would have been singing these psalms, would have been singing Psalm 130. And so you can picture the people ascending the mountain toward Jerusalem and toward the temple and and singing this song, approaching the one who has saved them time and time again, who, who never grows weary of saving his people. So imagine the different circumstances that people would be in. 
Certainly, there were some who were experiencing uh, good things in, in life and, and, and were walking up the mountain celebrating the things that God had done and, and how he had delivered them. They'd be celebrating the second half of this psalm, that deliverance had come. And there's certainly people, I'm sure, who are facing brutal circumstances and sorrow and, and loss, and they were, they were needing to be reminded that there was hope in waiting on the Lord to, to bring deliverance. Maybe, maybe some of you can, can relate to that. And I'm sure there was people feeling as they were walking up the mountain and singing the Psalms, feeling unworthy to be ascending the mountain toward Jerusalem yet again, singing these same songs yet again, to worship God in the temple yet again, and yet still experiencing the same sin as the year before and the year before that, still experiencing the same hardship, the same trials, the same feelings of isolation and loneliness, the same feelings of failure yet again. And feeling, feeling disqualified and needing to be reminded that with the Lord, there is plentiful redemption, that he redeems his people from all of their iniquities. And so maybe you're here today and maybe that's your story. Maybe you've been here before. You come in Sunday after Sunday, day, week in and, and week out, and you turn your attention to the Lord and you hear the gospel yet again and you sing these songs yet again, and, but you look at your life throughout the week and you recognize that it's the same fears over and over again, the same sins over and over again, the same bondage, the same things that you've been longing to escape from, the longing to be delivered from, and you're beginning to be discouraged. Maybe discouragement has long since passed, and maybe now you're just feeling disqualified from this kind of hope. You need to know today that your sin does not disqualify you from hope. Your sin does not disqualify you from hope. It's just a reminder that sometimes your hope is in the wrong thing. Your sin doesn't disqualify you from hope. It drives you to the hope that you can have in Jesus. Regardless of your circumstances, God is a God who saves. Jesus is our Savior. With the Lord, there is plentiful redemption. That means there's enough to go around. You might sit here, you go, I know that person, I know that person, I know that person. I know the garbage going on in their life. Yeah, so there's enough to go around. There is enough redemption for all of us. With the Lord, there is plentiful redemption. He's not waiting for you to recognize your sin and come to him with your tail between your legs. He recognizes your sin. And he came to you with a cross on his back. He's not waiting for you to get it together. He has done it for you. He was crushed for our iniquity, for our transgression and sin. He suffered the penalty. Jesus Christ came into this world to save you from desperation, to save you from anguish, to save you from sin. Your sin does not disqualify you from hope. It drives us to the cross. Reality Carpinteria. Hope in Jesus. Because in Jesus, you have a greater hope. You have a greater assurance than even the psalmist did. 
The psalmist can come and he can write these words and know about who God is and and what he has done from the past. But it was on the other side of the cross. He did not know how the Lord would deliver. He did not know when it would come. And so we can have a greater assurance than the psalmist looking back and seeing what Jesus has done, seeing what God has accomplished on our behalf. The psalmist hoped in the Lord, having no idea when it would arrive. And then one day it came. Jesus Christ came. And so no longer do we ascend to God's presence because he descended from the heavens to us. And everywhere we have failed, and every way we've missed the mark, and every way we've made mistakes, Jesus was faithful. He didn't fail where we failed. He's, he's victorious where we've failed. He was faithful where we've been faithless. He fulfilled the covenant in our place and has given us righteousness. Everyone who believes has given us his righteousness And he died in our place. And all of the sin that God has been passing over in our lives since the foundations of the world, past, present, and future, like like a flood filled Jesus' sinless heart. And the one who knew no sin became sin, that we might be the righteousness of God. And he was nailed to the cross. And our sin that filled his heart, was nailed to the cross with him so that our sin would die when Jesus Christ died on the cross and so that our sin would be buried with him when Jesus Christ was buried in the tomb. But when he rose three days later, your sin stayed in the grave never to have claim over you again. The reason that you can have hope, the reason that you can know that you will be delivered from your desperation is because Jesus has already accomplished the deliverance. It is finished. It is finished. If you want to know the steadfast love and plentiful redemption of God, then look to the cross of Jesus Christ. The reason that you can have assurance of your deliverance today is because Jesus has already accomplished that deliverance and all you need to do is receive it and say, yes, Jesus, I believe that what you did saves me from what will come if I don't trust in you. Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our only hope. The reason Advent is a season of hope is not because we buy each other presents and because of the human spirit that we can accomplish something, we can change things. No, Advent is a season of hope because Christ has come, he has died, he has raised from the dead, he has saved, he has poured out his Holy Spirit and where the Spirit of God is, there is hope. And Jesus is coming again to make all things new. This is what Advent is all about. We rejoice that he has come, but like the saints of old, we still wait in this anticipation. We still wait like a rope being stretched between two points. We we wait. We've got a a, a slack line set up in our front yard right now. If you know what a slack line is, you see it's attached to two trees or poles. It's like a tightrope right? The way we walk on the tightrope, the way we, we, we faithfully wait in anticipation is hope. 
Hope is what keeps us navigating this, this distance between desperation and deliverance because he is coming again. And so we wait and hope in Jesus, knowing that that is what will finally break the tension. And Jesus will win over and we will be set free. And in the meantime, he's given us his spirit. And if you've trusted in Jesus, then you have the Holy Spirit of God. And where the Spirit of God is, there's hope. Let's pray together. Jesus, it is in you and your name and what you have done that we put our hope. Lord, it is because of you that we are delivered from our desperation now and in the age to come that you have given us your Spirit And where your spirit is, God, we have hope. And so, Lord, would this hope stir us up now? Lord, would this hope stir us up and and fill our minds and heart with the glories of God, of what you've accomplished to deliver us from our desperation? Lord, when we feel like the waters have come up to our neck, Lord, would you bring deliverance and set our feet? on a sure foundation. Lord, we love you and we give you all praise today. We give you all glory and all of our worship. Would you fix our eyes and our attention upon you? Be glorified in our minds and our hearts and stir us up to worship you in this place, to rest and trust in the deliverance that you have brought for us. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.